We're going to be working almost exclusively out of Mark chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and get there now, you may on however you choose to follow along. But before we dig in, we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. And we ask that by the reading of your scriptures, you would transform our hearts and minds so that we accurately see you, accurately see ourselves, and accurately perceive the world around us. We ask that by the time we spend together, it changes our lives in a way that makes it out of Sunday morning into every aspect of our existence. And we ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit in the Son's name, amen. All right, so I prefaced you with Mark 8, but we're actually going to start somewhere else. We're gonna start with a friend of mine, and really the next three minutes of this is going to be me telling you why Jerry Williams should be your friend. Why you should make it a point of your life to go find Jerry Williams and say, hey, Jerry, I want to be your friend. Because Jerry Williams is a good guy. And he, yes, one, Jerry Williams' mom is in the house today and wooed for him. (laughs) One person agrees with me that Jerry Williams is a good guy. But Jerry Williams is also a fun guy. And so you want to have a guy like Jerry Williams on your team. Because some random Tuesday morning at 11.34, you'll be in your office returning emails or, or whatever it is, or pretending to work so the bosses don't catch you. Whatever it is that you do on Tuesday mornings at 11.34, and your phone will go, and you'll pick that up, and you'll look at it, and you'll see it's from Jerry. Because one of the services that Jerry provides is premium dad jokes. Like premium dad jokes. So you'll pick it up, And you'll look, you'll see it's from Jerry, and you're in work mode. So you're not thinking dad, you're not in dad joke mode. You're in work mode. So you pick it up, you're like, all right, Jerry, what you got for me? And it'll be something like, why are peppers considered the rudest vegetable in the entire garden? Because they get jalapeno business. (laughs) Exactly. And it will kind of break the monotony of your day because exactly what will happen on that group chat is exactly what happened in this room. Half of you stood and looked at me like, Really? <laughs> and the other half were you like, yes, give me all of that. And you can think of the group chat and you go, oh yeah, he and she, they are rolling their eyes, but he and she are laughing out loud right now. But those aren't the best ones. Those are kind of straightforward. The best one that he gives is when you don't realize their jokes until it's too late. Like you're already wrapped too far into it. Because he'll send you something that says like, hey guys, I'm going through a lot right now. And then like 10 seconds later, after it's kind of seeped into you and you're like, oh no, Jerry's going through a lot. Like, what do I do? How do I reach out? How do I respond? He'll send you a picture of him in a parking lot. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's like comedic timing on steroids. Or he'll say something, hey guys, I'm in Fredericksburg trying this new cafe out. And you'll be like, oh really, I'm in the, ah, that's good. And then he'll send you, it's like, it's called karma. There's no menus and you get what you deserve. (laughs) So they're not all winners. But you laugh none the same. And Jerry provides other amazing services as well. Uh, I had a pretty bad accident back in September of 2019 and it tore up my left arm. But more than that, it really kind of tore me up mentally. And it's the fall time, and I forget where my wife and I were, but she was driving me home for maybe a doctor's appointment or, or a, a rehab appointment or, or something like that. And we pull into the driveway, 
And Jerry has set on, on our porch some things that others of our friends had given. And there's like those hollow pumpkins filled with candy for the kids. And there's like food. And, you know, there's, there's like things that aren't practical in any way, shape, or form there too for, for the family to enjoy, right? For our kids to come home. And we've just had this kind of traumatic event, but our kids can come home and like see fun and see color and kind of breathe some joy back into our lives, and that's why I say you should get Jerry Williams as your friend or someone like Jerry, because who we let into our lives matters a lot. Who we let into our lives directly affects the quality of our lives. And we know that's important because we've been told since the time we can hear that our lives are important. We've been told this in a million different ways. Like you only live once, which the implied meaning is, You'd better make it count since you only live once. There's no pause button. There's no do-over. Your life is important, so make it count. And we wisely take that advice and go, yeah, my life is important. It is important for me to live a good life. And so I want to have a life of value. And so we go about adding things like friends to our lives. One of the ways we add value to our lives is through relationships. Now, to be sure, your first relationships you don't get to choose, we call those relatives. Sometimes that's a mixed bag. But you don't get to choose them, but as you get older, you potentially have classmates, and then you kind of get to choose some friends. You get to make choices about who you let into your life. And then you get colleagues, and you kind of get get to choose who you get close to and don't. And then some of us choose to have romantic relationships. And we get to choose those and those affect and add value to our life as well. But it's not just relationships that we pursue to add value. We pursue experiences because we want to know things. We want to see things. We want to be well-traveled and well-rounded. So we read books that challenge us and entertain us. And we travel to places because we want to see what goes on there. We want to experience other cultures, other ways of thinking, other way of living. We want to eat different things. We want to know different things. We want experiences to add to our lives. And really, it's not enough just to add the experience. We take pictures of these moments. So we can relive those experiences and so we can share those experiences with the people that we're in relationship with. So we can say, hey, here's where I was and here's what I did and here's what I experienced or here's what I ate and here's what it tastes like. Because in talking about those experiences and in sharing those experiences, they come more alive as they share their experiences with us. And so we add relationships, we add experiences and we're also told from the time that we can walk we are going to need some education because what's the converse? Like you need to add some education to your existence so you are not unwise. And we do that in a lot of different ways. You're going to have to learn a skill. You're going to have to master a trade. You might even have to go to college and get a specialist degree in something to pursue your passion or your occupation because your education is important in that a lot of times our education determines how we make money because money is also something we're going to need to add to our lives if we are going to consider them valuable. I know that rubs some people the wrong way, but hear me out. When you got up this morning, you got up in an apartment or a home that you 
pay for, out of a bed that you paid for, and then put on clothes that you paid for, and then went downstairs and ate food that you paid for, prepared by the gas or electricity that you paid for. And I would say the vast majority of you walked into your driveway or your garage and got in a car that you're still paying for, <laughs> using gas that you have already paid for, just to get out of your driveway. It costs money to breathe the free air that God gives us. You cannot leave your house without having incurred expenses. And so we add these things to our lives to make them valuable. And to be sure, none of these are bad things. Relationships, education, money, none of these are bad things, but it seems to be a toss of the coin whether they actually add value to our lives or not. Because not every relationship has added value to my life. In fact, some have hurt me pretty badly. Not every experience leads up to the hype. Some experiences are a little bit of letdown, and I found pretty quickly that my education, the best thing I ever learned is that I don't know enough. And don't get me started on money. How much money is enough? Just that much more. And so we pursue these things, and we add these things and others to our life, and at some point, those of us that pursue them long enough realize, uh-oh, these things that we're supposed to supply value to my life are not supplying the value that I thought they would. And we're forced to kind of rethink everything because we come to the end of ourselves and we kind of realize, uh-oh, I might not have this whole thing figured out. I might not have this because when natural disasters come or something happens to me that I didn't see or was unprepared for and rocks the foundation of the world, it superseded my education and my wealth and my relationships. And here I am with my hands in the air going, uh-oh, what do I do now? And it's at that point a lot of us walk into organized religion because nothing brings people to church like a crisis. Nothing brings people through those doors like a crisis that shows us the end of ourselves. Because at some point, we remember hearing, there's a good God that loves me. There's a good God that wants what's best for me. And I remember either reading or somebody said that Jesus has said things like, whatever you ask for in my name, I will give it to you. And I'm looking for a way to tie all this together. All the things that I have added, they didn't give me the meaning, they didn't give me the purpose that I thought they would. But if I add Jesus to that, if he runs the thread through these things, they will give meaning. And I can ask him for anything in his name because we also remember that his brother James said, we don't have it because we haven't asked for it. And so we take those two things together that we've heard from well-meaning pastors, that we've heard from well-meaning Sunday school teachers, that we've heard, because it fits really, it's one of those things that fits really nicely on a coffee cup or a bumper sticker, right? It's one of those things that kind of permeates into the culture and we hear it and we go, I've come to the end of myself. I need a good God that loves me. He's going to give me what I ask for in his name. This is it. This is the secret. This is how I give life meaning. And you can see why we've been that way 
Because we've blindly accepted that the way to add value to our lives is to add things to our lives. So it only makes sense that if I come to Jesus Christ, he will tie it all up and add the things to my life that I need. And once he's added those things, I will have the meaningful life because I myself am not enough. My life on its own is not valuable enough. I must add things to it. But we only need to read the next sentence to see that is not at all what God has promised. In the very next sentence after James writes, you don't have it because you haven't asked for it, he says, or you ask for it with the wrong motives or to spend on your pleasures. You see, God is not in the business of giving us whatever it is that we want. He's in the business of giving us the things that we need. And what we need right now at this moment is a radically different way of looking at what makes life valuable. What does it mean when I say I want to lead a meaningful, valuable life? And he's gonna deliver that in Mark chapter eight. To preface, he's just finished feeding about 4,000 people. And he did so with a few loaves of bread and a handful of fish, which as you can imagine, has made him wildly popular. Like that is an experience that I would drive a lot of miles to see. If there's a guy out there taking a little bit of food and feeding lots of people, I'm in. I wanna go see this guy that can do this and judge for myself if this is a trick or if this is real. And a lot of people in first century Palestine felt the same way. They would travel for miles and stay there for days hoping to hear something wise or see something miraculous. So Jesus and his disciples would kind of travel around and people would follow him, hoping to hear it, hoping to see it. And it's on these travels that we pick up in Mark chapter eight, where Jesus says to his disciples as they're going around the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So he asked these guys, he says, hey, you guys that follow me closely, you spend a lot of time with the people that follow us. You spend a lot of time in among them, talking with them, serving them, guiding them, telling them where we're gonna go. So you spend more time conversing with them than I do. Who are they saying that I am? And they say, well, there's no real consensus. Some say you're this prophet, come back. Some say you're that prophet, come back. But there is a general consensus, Jesus. The general consensus is that you are from God. Because nobody could say the things that you say and nobody could do the things that you do if they were not from God. But then Jesus kind of narrows the scope. He gets a little bit more focused and he turns to his 12 and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. So Jesus says, hey, pop quiz guys, that's who they say, but you spend more time with me. You're closer with me than they are. What do you say? And Peter says a lot in just a few words when he says, you are the Messiah. Because he is saying, you are the deliverer that we have waited generations for. 
All of Jewish culture was centered around waiting and identifying the Messiah, the Savior that would come, that would set Israel up as a kingdom that would endure forever, ensuring that they could worship God forever, that they would no longer be slaves to conquering nations. The Messiah was going to come in. He was going to raise an army. He was going to get the Romans out of Jerusalem, set up a kingdom that would never falter, and the Jews would never be slaves again. And this is what Peter was saying. And Jesus has a very odd response. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He says, don't tell anyone yet. Don't correct their misconceptions. You got it right. I am the Messiah. But this doesn't need to get out of this circle right now. But I understand what you're saying. And I want to tell you what it really means to be the Messiah. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. No riddles, no parables, no metaphors. He says, you are correct. I am the Messiah, and this is what that means. It means that one day I'm going to walk into Jerusalem, and there's going to be people there that want to kill me, and they're going to be successful. I am going to die. But don't sweat it. Because you're going to see me again when I come back out of that grave. Peter did not like this answer. It says in scripture, Peter took him and rebuked him. Now that's not a word that we use a whole lot. Rebuke. What that means is a sharp disagreement. So we can see that Peter was really unhappy with this arrangement, and I hope we can understand why. This is his friend, and his friend has just said, hey, you know what the plan for my life is? To walk willingly into an execution plot. I would hope that you as a good friend to me would stop me if I was talking like that. That's what good friends do. Hey, Jay, are you sure this is a good plan? Because I'm not sure you going to your death is a good plan. And there's a lot of reasons why. Peter had left his home. Peter had left his life. Peter had left his occupation. His success, his life was inextricably linked to that of Jesus Christ. So if Jesus Christ went to his death, what does that mean for Peter? Not only that, Peter had a vision of the Messiah for all of Israel. He's like, if the Messiah dies, what happens to Israel? This is not a good plan, Jesus, that you die and we were wrong and Israel remains slaves to the Romans. Let's call that plan B because that really sounds like losing and we don't do losing here. We backed the Messiah. We backed the greatest winner of all time. We back the undefeatable son of God. So why don't you get to step in and go act like the undefeatable son of God and quit talking this nonsense? And you and I do that all the time. You and I look at the hand that God has dealt us. Let's call this plan B. You and I look at the people that have been put in our lives, the places that we've been placed, the things that have happened to us, and we go, ah, this doesn't look like winning. When I signed on to the most powerful, most loving, most intelligent being that ever existed, this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for the winning part. 
I read the last chapter first. I know how this ends. How does the winning happen out of this? And this is Jesus' response to Peter. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples. So he says, all right, that Messiah stuff was just for you guys, but everybody needs to hear what's about to come out of my mouth now. All you crowd, gather around. Everybody needs to hear this. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. In just two sentences, Jesus turns on its head everything that we think leads to a valuable life. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You want to know what a valuable life looks like? I'm in the middle of showing it to you right now. Jesus took up his cross. This is what he asks of us. Take up his cross and willingly march to everything that we spend our lives attempting to avoid. He willingly marched to pain, humiliation, and suffering. Why? So that we could know him. He quite literally laid down his life, set aside the power that was rightfully his, and in his wisdom took on all of the things that we try not to add to our lives. And then said something weird. The only way to save your life is to lose it. The only way to save your life is to give it away, which makes no sense. How do I save something that I've given away? I gave it away. What does it mean to save something? This is an invitation to lead a life that's no longer defined by what I can add but an invitation to use what I have been given to serve the same people that Jesus willingly chose the cross for. And he says, this is what it looks like to live a meaningful life. Think about that for a moment in the face of a lifestyle of accumulation, a lifestyle of adding things, could never compare to the motivational power, to the inspiration of the self-sacrificial life that Jesus models for us. Which do you prefer? Which sounds better to you? Which would you rather hear from someone that you love? My love, I will give my very life for you. I will give the moments of my life for you or my love, I will spend my life adding things to it to make it valuable for me? The answer is undeniable. It's in every great work of art that we admire. It's in every book worth reading and every movie that we pay $17 a ticket to see. At some point, the hero 
has to face this sacrificial moment. At some point, he or she has to look in the face of almost certain death and say, you know what? That's the path of my future for the ones that I love. Has to be willing to pay the ultimate price for the ones that he or she loves. And it makes us cry. And it makes us go back. And it motivates us to be better people and better humans and to love deeper. And when we take that away from the Christ, when we bury the lead and we don't lead with that, we take away the most compelling part of our faith. The most compelling part of our faith is that the all-powerful, all-knowing, incomprehensible Son of God came to this earth not to consolidate power, not to consolidate accolades, not to add anything, but to declare your and my life valuable based on what he was willing to do to save it. And when we forget that, we bury the lead. We take the very best part of our faith and we put it in the rearview mirror and we lift up this lifestyle of accumulation, put a Christian paint job on it and say, go with me as I go, God, I'm doing good, bless me as I walk. And when he doesn't, we get mad and we rebuke him like Peter does and we say, I'm following you. Why isn't my life working out? But he's too good to give us what we want because he wants more for us. And he takes aim, direct aim, at a lifestyle of accumulation in the very next sentence when he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? He says, whoever dies with the most toys and the best land and the coolest stories still dies. And when they die, they see me. And when they see me and they see who I am, and they understand for sure what I have done for them, and they understand me, they will understand that they have not accumulated enough to ever purchase a do-over and choose to pursue the right things. That when they see me, they will understand potentially for the first time that I am the value and I am the prize and I was to be pursued. And the life that I laid out a life of sacrificial love was by far the better of the choices. He reminds us when he continues saying, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. He reminds us that the part of us that is most us the part of us that continues after our bodies die, what we call the soul, but it goes by many names. And this is hotly debated. This is not by any means something that all of humanity agrees on, but I find it to be painfully obvious that there is more to me than my broken body. I find it to be painfully obvious that the most important part of me is the spiritual part that it doesn't make sense to describe in terms of color or feel or smell or taste. That part will go into the presence of a living God. And at that moment, what I thought of Jesus while I was on this earth matters a lot. 
If you are here and you are undecided about who Jesus is, I would implore you to struggle with that question, to not put it on the back burner, because what you think about Jesus not only affects how you navigate this life, but it affects what happens in the next life, which is forever. Because we share a lot of common characteristics. Each one of us was born and will die. And between that birth and that death, we will do wrong. We will lie to one another. We will hurt one another. We will fail to do good to one another. We will actively, intentionally corrupt the creation that God has given us to care for. And as a result of that corruption, we stand correctly separated from a perfect and loving God. But God, unwilling that this would be the final arrangement for us, sent his son Jesus that we've been reading about to come down here, to live a perfect life, to march toward all the things we spend our lives avoiding, ultimately be tortured and murdered on a cross in first century Palestine and rise again, all so that we would have the opportunity to do what we could not have done for ourselves, to restore ourselves to a loving God. And that is what is at stake. What you think about Jesus matters a lot. So ask the questions, read the books, think about it, and come to a definite answer on who is Jesus. For those of us that do agree that Jesus is who he says he is, these are challenging words indeed. These are not comfortable words. And when we read things that say like, you have to give away your life to save it, dangerous words like deny yourself, scary words like take up your cross and follow me, we bristle and we say things like, oh no, the Lord wants me to sell my house and sell my car and move to some foreign country and live in a hut and, and praise the name of Jesus. This is what he wants for me and I'm scared of that. And I would say, maybe. I didn't get that out of that. Maybe that's what he wants for your life, but that's what for you and him to decide. What he says in here is to rethink the things that you've been given. They weren't given to you to add value to your life. They were given to you so that you could serve the ones that Jesus loves. They were given to you so that you can live a life like the one that Jesus Christ exemplified. A life spent in the service of others and not in the business of accumulation. It sounds like a burden, but it's not, it's freedom. So many of the problems that exhaust us as a result of our endless thirst for accumulation as weaponizing relationships to satisfy, money to satisfy. It's a blessing that those things don't satisfy. It's a blessing that we cannot chase those things and be filled to the point where we no longer chase Jesus Christ. This gospel, this good news is freedom. The freedom to live like our Savior did. And that's a big concept. And it's hard to know where to start. 
So you narrow the focus, you start with yourself, you start with some introspection and you do some business and say, am I in the business of accumulation or am I using what God has given me to serve others? And when you arrive at the answer to that question, you need look no farther than your own home. There are people in your home that God has put there for you to serve, for you to pray for, for you to love, for you to teach for you to lay down your life for. You don't even need to walk out of your front door to find a mission field, but you can. You can go to the places you spend the most time, your school, your work, and you can pray for those people and you can look for opportunities and you can love them and you can serve them and you can self-sacrificially be an example of Jesus Christ. Because you realize the biggest problem in Northern Virginia is not that nobody has ever heard the name of Jesus Christ. 99% of Northern Virginia knows the name of Jesus Christ. The biggest problem facing Northern Virginia is that those of us that claim the name of Jesus Christ do not act like he did. And we are a poor representation of the life that he calls us to lead. So when people reject Jesus, they're often not really rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the version that we, by failing to follow his example, have put out there. Because the version we put out there is very dangerous. The version that we put out there is come to Jesus because he'll give you the things that add value to your life. Show up at the most important time which is between nine and 12 o'clock on a Sunday, and come all stare at the most important position, which is behind whatever podium at whatever church you're at, and hear from the most important person teaching the scriptures. And it's a lie, and it's wrong, because we are the church. We are the people of God. He says, we are the ambassadors declaring the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into light. This is a team game. And these words, though difficult, restore our purpose and restore our identity. And in that, we now know what's valuable. And in that, we know how to lead a life worth leading. And as a team game, this is a big concept and you are not meant to wrestle with it alone. At both campuses, there's gonna be fine men and women up here that you can pray with, that you can talk to. If you're on the fence about who Jesus is, I would implore you to come ask the questions. Come be known, let your doubts be voiced. If you don't know where to start the self-sacrificial life, come up, be part of a community, be prayed with, talk to, voice your concerns. Don't let this be something that you think about for 15 minutes and then forget over lunch. Take the bold step of being known. They pray all week that just a handful of us would come and be known and start our journey because it's the only journey worth taking. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for saving us from our own selfish designs. We thank you that we have a great big purpose and a great big God to make our lives meaningful. We ask 
that you would give us the fortitude and the desire to shun the idea that adding is the way to value. And instead, that we embrace the life that you exemplify, that we would deny ourselves, that we would take up our cross, and that we would follow you. And that as many people as possible, as a result of us following you, in the next life would point at you and say, hey, I know that guy. We love you. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.